I'm a mess tonight. <laughs> my back hurts. Somehow I strained my back today. I'm not so worried about it, but it's a little irritating. And my heart is really heavy. Uh, even though these things happen every day in so many places in the world, I'm also very aware of the the uh, all the ripples of the shooting at University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, Isla Vista, Santa Barbara area. I don't know how many of you are hearing or reading the news, but uh, but it's a great tragedy. There are people in this room who know people who were, whose families were affected by that, but we're all affected. Um, if, we're, if our hearts are open, our eyes are open to that level of uh, terror and heartbreak and loss and um, just to remind us of our, of our vulnerability. And so when we ask in the meta phrases, may I feel safe from inner, of course we need to learn to be safe with ourselves, but also from outer harm, it's, uh, it's a natural and sincere desire to feel safe. Uh, because we know in our heart of hearts that we are vulnerable to uncertainty, to circumstances, and and it's really easy to get uh, buried by the um, by the that uncertainty as well as just the felt sense of loss and uh, felt sense of the heartache that that so many people are experiencing. And I think it's maybe especially meaningful to me right now because this Friday, this coming uh, in the next few days, I am actually going to teach on that campus for the weekend. So I know that the 60 or so people that come to the retreat will be, will, will be right in the middle of their grief and their uh, terror and, and, uh, just the overwhelm of having been having an emotional bomb like that dropped in the middle of the community. But I wish that we were all more sensitive to that all the time. We tend to, if the farther, it's almost the same as the effect of the, our sensitivity, our insight, our love seems to be dependent on the proximity of our observation. From a great distance, it's one thing. When we're up close, it's another. It's the same as what's true about our, our own bodies. When we look from a distance, it seems very solid and very independent, this thing called my body. But then when we look more deeply into it, if we were to put it under the microscope of our attention or literally a microscope, it reveals itself to be very dynamic and not so separate from everything else that... And it doesn't take much to remind ourselves that we are, our bodies are made up of the same thing every other body is made up of. And then our hearts are made up of the same. We all have that tender heart of sadness and we all have vulnerability. And, and when we look closely, we see that and we see, oh, that's, I'm like that. It's not just other people. Um, and hopefully in the course of our practice, as we come closer to our own experience, let ourselves be touched by outer experience, uh, we become more tender, more passionate about our tenderness. One of my favorite teachings from a guy named uh, 
oh, not a guy name, <laughs> a teacher. <laughs> Just some Joe Schmo. <laughs> Trunk Perimpache, who many of you... (laughs) (laughs) So, sorry. It's so great to be able to laugh a little. Otherwise, it's not so funny. (laughs) It's it's cry weather. But uh, Trunk Perimpache, in one of his books, uh, the book particularly... A particular book called Shambhala, Sacred Path of the Warrior, which is very widely read. But there's one chapter in that book called The Tender Heart of, of Sadness or The Tender Heart of Warriorship. And it's Sacred Path of the Warrior. is It's not turning into a, a warrior who's all pumped up. And as he says, it's not as though when you become a warrior, you hear Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And, you know, feel all inflated that his notion of a warrior is someone who has touched into the tender heart of sadness. And if you feel sad and you feel a little teary, and this is a sign of uh, the beginning of warriorship. And he says for, for people who start to realize their tenderness, it's a little bit like when a reindeer first begins to grow its horns. At first there are these, there's these lumpy, gross, bloody a little bit, and you don't quite know what to do with them. But then as the reindeer's horns grow, the longer and longer, the reindeer realizes that it's meant to have horns, not learns how to use them. And in the same way, we are meant to have tender hearts, and, um, and we get used to it, and then we... As I was saying before, we become passionate about that. So we don't have to, as Ajahn Sumedho says, we don't have to hide away in fear and dullness, that we can let our hearts become brighter, our our minds become brighter, our hearts become more open and uh, and, and see what's going on in this world, not just uh, go unconscious, to choose as our methodology what the Buddha suggested, which is turn toward the pain of the world. Don't turn away from it. Don't turn the pain of the world into a religion, into a, a story, but turn toward it so that it actually tenderizes you, that it ferments you, as Hafez puts it, so it seasons you, as he says, as few human or divine ingredients can. So that, as he says in one of his poems, we can all we can all know that feeling of something missing, some tender vulnerability, and and feel our our eyes soften and our hearts and feel our voice sound so tender, and that's what happens when our hearts are touched. We we get tender. Having just led this retreat, it's a I, I'm I think I could almost write a book on on the faith and confidence I have in in human, in our uh, intrinsic human nature. It's because I, this group that was the 75 or so people who were on the retreat, they all came in, as most retreats do, everybody is a little wound up, a little nervous, a little, a little um, stressed, exhausted, deeply exhausted, and people sleep the first few days, and 
mostly what we call sinking mind, tranquility, not much energy, or as the Tibetans call it, stupid meditation, stupid shamatha. Very valued because of the tranquility, but not much, not much awareness. But how each person started to just perk up, and how the vital energy started to come back, just because of the safety, just because of the nurturing, the nature. And then, by the end, at least on, on our side, on the teaching side, and fortunately people got to look at each other and talk to each other, but the, the amount of radiance, people don't even know how bright and beautiful and sweet everybody gets so sweet, it's almost impossible to bear. It's just so sweet. And I know that there is in this world absolute insanity. There is mental illness. There is hatred. There is greed. There is just so much confusion and it compounds in so many ways. But it is really um, gratifying to know that that when, when there is a, a high degree of safety and comfort, uh, people are beautiful and they shine. And that gives me a lot of, makes me optimistic about the possibility of human beings, the possibility of training our attention, the possibility of what happens when we turn toward uh, our difficulties, turn toward painful experiences like our, the things that are happening in Santa Barbara and, and everywhere else in the world, is that we have this capacity to turn our uh, turn pain into compassion, turn our difficulties into the path, into something that awakens us and makes us happier, interestingly enough, because we feel more connected. Uh, I think it's a unique human quality that our difficulties become the cause of happiness. And I don't mean to make difficulties a religion. Let me see if I can go find some more difficulties. <laughs> That's not what I mean. But the ones that inevitably present themselves in everyone's life, they, they can, I don't know, just turning a little bit. Maybe it's easy from a distance. It's bourgeois. You know, I'm not like, I'm not giving my body over to, I'm not stepping in front of any bullets right now. But I, I do, as I turn toward the fact of the pain in that situation in Santa Barbara, what I'm walking into, there's something, it, it just makes my heart um, more tender. Uh, I used to, when I would, anything like uh, disasters or, uh, yeah, I just used to tighten up and become afraid. I think that can... That really stops with mindfulness and loving kindness. I saw a hand go up. You're going to have to, if you speak, you have to speak really loudly, if you don't mind. Say it once more. No. It's, it's Howard or Howie. Oh, I have no idea. I'm sorry I can't help you with that. I, good luck finding Timothy. Good luck. So even in, in spite of our, our turning toward pain, and, and it seems that there is also a, it's also important that we 
keep a sense of humor and that we keep a sense of delight as well. Keep a sense, just find the, the joy in, in everything we can in our lives. To reflect on the preciousness of our lives and our situations, our, our dear ones, our whatever it is that show, and even the preciousness of our, the difficulties that show up in our lives. But it's really important that we try to be happy. Try to be happy. As Jack Gilbert put it in his poem called A Brief for the Defense, sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they're starving somewhere else with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what life wants. Otherwise, the mornings before the summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness of their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta. And the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of the deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of the world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to, bra- is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of life runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit there, we must admit there will be music despite everything. And we stand at the prow again of a small ship anchored late at night in the tiny port looking over the sleeping island. The waterfront is three shuttered cafes, one naked light burning, to hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as a rowboat comes slowly out, then goes back, is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. So we don't want to miss that right in the middle of it all, right in the middle, there's the faint sound of the oars, there is the, just the touch of our body, there's a touch of our presence together right now. We don't want to miss reality just because we know the situation is, is so painful. So both. We don't want to forget. We don't want to turn away from the difficulties, but we also don't want to miss the, the fullness of, of being right here. But we can't to learning how to be present and even though it opens our hearts and all of that, opens our clears our minds, opens our hearts and brings forth all these beautiful intrinsic qualities. You can't be too idealistic about it either. Because even with the clear heart you, the people who are coming off of retreat, you know, even though your heart is so tender and your eyes so clear <laughs> It's easy to be blown away by how crazy it is, how crazy people are. 
crazy drivers, crazy. People are so aggressive. I think I heard three or four stories in the last 24 hours about road rage and about, uh, about assaults and about standing up for one, you know, just things that you have to learn to deal with and try to deal with with all the love in your heart. And I like to rely on the teachings of a young monk, or not exactly a young monk, but a, a young lama, uh, a Tibetan lama who's actually half Tibetan, half, half uh, American, some of you have heard this story before, but he, gave, he really helped me put in perspective the challenges of being awake, open-hearted, in a crazy world. This is an interview with the Lama, Lama means teacher, named Pema Jones, who at the time of this, of this interview was 13 years old, 13-year-old Tibetan Lama, and he's known as Rinpoche, which means precious one, and he was born in India to a Tibetan mother and an American father. He lived in a Tibetan Buddhist monastery until he was seven, and at the time of this, uh, he lived in Wyoming, and he's one of the, as a 13-year-old, one of the youngest Buddhist teachers in the United States. It must be hard enough to be a 13-year-old boy in America, not to mention a Tibetan Lama. How do your friends and family treat your connection to the Dharma? It's kind of weird. I have two older brothers, and they tease me about it. They call me Shrimpoche. <laughs> the kids at school don't know I'm a Lama. I would never tell them. Why not? I get dissed enough as it is just being Asian. They call me names like Nip and Gook. It's not like when I was growing up in India. Everyone here in Wyoming is white, and I consider it a good day when some goof in a pickup truck doesn't try to run me over. How do you deal with people trying to hurt you? It's pretty safe around here, but we Asians need to stick together. Some of my best friends in our gang are Chinese. It's strange to have Chinese friends when my family has been, been treated so poorly, so badly by the Chinese, but this is America. I, I've got to live here with my own karma. Some skinhead doesn't care whether I'm Tibetan or Chinese. He just wants to stomp my head. You're in a gang? It's just for protection. It's like if a guy threatens one of us, there's nothing we can do on our own. But by getting a bunch of us together, we can defend ourselves. We don't have guns, and we don't do drugs or rob people. Can we talk about something else? Sure. Do you like your students? Sure. Yeah, they're all right. They're kind of funny. It's like they say they come for the teachings, but when they get into the interview room, they talk about other stuff. What other stuff? They mainly talk about the opposite sex, 
Men talk about problems with their wives. Women talk about their husbands and boyfriends. I don't get it. It's like I have little enough time as it is with school and Little League and my chores. And they want me to be a shrink or something. And I'm only 13. I've got girlfriends at all, but what do I know about relationships? So what do you tell them? I talked to my dad about it, and he gave me a stack of business cards from one of his friends, a psychologist. <laughs> I just hand my students one of the cards when they start talking about relationships. I put my name on the back of the card, and whenever my dad's friend gets a new client, he takes me and my brothers and sister to Dairy Queen. It's cool. Buddhism is no big deal. It's like being a doctor. They're suffering, you diagnose it, give someone a prescription, and hope they go to the drugstore. No one in America wants to go to the store, though. They all want to be pharmacists and sit around discussing different types of medicine. What's with that? Take some medicine. Come back next week. I mean, don't get me wrong. Buddhism is choice. So you're fully qualified to teach. Sure, I mostly teach giving and receiving, tonglen. It's what I think works best at times when people are trying to kill you or too many changes are happening at once, which seems to be the case in this country. You're basically a giant filter, like on an air conditioner. You suck in the bad air, breathe out the pure air. I see myself like an air conditioning repair dude. I teach people how to filter and cool things down. So if you can cool things down, why do you need to be in a gang? It's a samsara and nirvana thing. If some guy disses me, I can just tell myself that he really doesn't exist separate from me. You know, it's like he's dissing himself. That works fine, but when, what happens when he, he stops talking and starts beating on me? You need to be able to take care of yourself so you don't get killed. We live in samsara, and spacing out about nirvana never helped anyone. Don't you see any contradictions with that? The Dalai Lama, for example, constantly teaches nonviolence, despite having been terribly oppressed all his life. Huh, yeah. Oh yeah, right. The Dalai Lama is an awesome old dude and a killer teacher. But he's got like a dozen bodyguards around him when he's traveling. What do you think would happen if some butthead pulls a gun on his holiness? Do you think those dozen bodyguards will practice nonviolence or bust some karate move on him? No way, man. A bodyguard sees this dweeb with a gun and he's going to pop a cap in his ass. <laughs> so, so we have to open our hearts but also keep our eyes wide open, take care of ourselves, not be too idealistic about the, the perfection of the heart. Both are true. We we're, we're, have this incredible capacity for love and, we, and beauty and clarity, and all the juicy human qualities that flow from that. And then, but we live in a world where, where there's just so much suffering. And uh, can't just space out about it. So that's the one. That was a little bit of what was on my mind tonight. 
had a few th other things on my on my mind, but it would be just a complete change of subject. <laughs> and I was listening to Marlena give the the Donna talk, as we do each week, and I I have such a a deep appreciation for the the whole Donna system, and it was such a central teaching in the Buddha, but the whole teaching was about establishing this current of relationship, of connection. And people often have these strange notions that meditators, and specifically the symbol of meditators that often people associate with meditation are the, the monastics, the renunciates. And this whole Buddhist monastic system Buddhist renunciate system started at the time of the Buddha. He set it. He set it up, but he he set it up to um, to be not isolated, not people isolating themselves in seclusion, except for periods of practice. But rather, in the monks' vinaya or the monks' rules, that that you. For your requisites, for your food, you had to, uh, it had to be uh, the distance from your elbow to, to, your, um, to your hand, to hold your begging bowl, and that's how you receive food, from this distance, hold, uh, holding the begging bowl. And you could not grow food, you could not, uh, you could not buy food, but you depended on the community, on relationship, on connection, for that, um, for your your basic needs. So the ideas that we have about this removing oneself from the world is exactly the opposite of how the whole monastic system was set up, how the whole system of dana was set up. The system of dana was that we provide the requisites of teachings. The lay community provides food, the robes, the shelter. And also there's some funny things that come from that, uh, from some of the misinformation that people have about, about the way that the system was set up, is that, uh, that somehow because there's such emphasis on this renunciation, that living a worldly life, practicing in one's worldly life with this human tenderness is somehow an inferior practice and that the real practice is in the in the monastic but it turns out that the buddha gave a lot of discourses to monastics people who had gone forth and renounced and that's those are the ones that rise to the top of the list of what are the ones that are have been popularized, but the Bo the Buddha gave he taught for forty five years, and at least I forgot the percentage, but a huge percentage he gave to lay people like us. And interestingly enough, again a little bit of, of the misinformation that we tend to have, it was all about relationship. It was all about connecting to the world, connecting to each other. And he valued tremendously people making money. How does that square with your view of the Dharma? 
He thought it was fantastic that people made money. And there was no prohibition at even making more money, being more successful. But what he did, what he was clear about, and this is where this sense of connection, this opening, is that, uh, that you do two things, that you don't cause harm when you're making money, and that you use that money in a conscious way when, you, when you've earned it, and use it to, in some ways, redistribute, <laughs> to be of benefit, to help those who have less. And, and that same giving and receiving, that economy of gifts that started at the Buddha, is the same, it's the same practice of opening to pain, opening to the world. It's not taking a vow of, of necessarily a vow of poverty and saying, I have enough, and just kind of hiding out. It's doing whatever you do well enough to be successful, to, to earn your keep, and then to, to, there were two things about using it well. And I found this very interesting too, in the reading that I've been doing. The first part of, doing, of using it well is to make sure that you take very good care of yourself, that you provide yourself enjoyment and comfort. And I speak a lot about Hopefully this ties into what we've been talking about. I speak a lot about making sure that the most radical form of social action is appropriate self-care. Because if you take good care of yourself, you give yourself pleasure, you give yourself comfort, you eat well, you, do, you meditate, you keep your heart open and tender, you are of such benefit you inevitably will give off the fragrance, as so many of the returning yogis do. You'll give off the fragrance of, of fullness, of sufficiency, of being rested, being an example of well-being and happiness in this world. You don't take care of yourself. You don't give to yourself properly. What happens? You end up completely stuck in yourself, chronically preoccupied, highly insensitive to what's going on around you. And then, therefore, to some... This is not absolute. It's everybody is some mix of the two. But, but some limitation about the benefit that you, can, that you can offer. So the very central piece was take, making sure... It was two things. Making sure you give well to yourself. Making sure you give well to others. That you to care for others. And I just found that to be part of the, of the whole of the teaching is about us connecting. It's about us turning, turning toward this deep interbeing that we share. Uh, this vulnerability, this world of pain, as well as the world of joy and delight in spite of difficulties. So this, the whole spirit of, of, um, of dana is really uh, just another kind of compassion. It's another form of compassion, another kind of love. And that's the one I was thinking about today. Please, again, speak...
I can't, I can't. I, I, could, you come up and, could you come up and use the microphone because I cannot hear you, I'm sorry. Hope that, hope, hope you're okay with that. Thank you. So what I was uh, asking was, uh, I wondered like if there's uh, anyone that has any uh, simple accommodations or um, if uh, they know of anyone or if uh, they know of like these uh, clubs. I also know about some of the hostels, like this city has always had kind of private ones. And then we have some others. Let's say that they are AYH. Uh, officially, AYH was supposed to be part of some other people's uh, holding uh, as through their founding. And uh, we know that what they consisted of here was that uh, only uh, certain people from certain countries was always in them, and um, nobody could be in them. That was. Uh, only certain people from certain countries uh, were already pre-booked, solid, uh, at the hostels in San Francisco. Uh, well, yeah, because, uh, well, my situation, I, I really had an area selected where I was going to go to one or two apartments. Well, I think and, we should talk about this after the... Oh, yeah, yeah, but... but yeah, yeah. I've just had a, a theft kind of situation. Okay. Well, we'll talk. We'll talk as soon as we're done here. Thank you. So we are at nine o'clock anyway, and I really appreciate everyone hanging in there this evening. And Elizabeth, and uh, as always, I I wish everyone tenderheartedness and clarity of mind and happiness and peace and I always like to consider that if there's been any benefit to us talking on the matters of the Dharma any of the practice that we've done together if there's any uh, fruit to that any goodness any understanding that it be shared freely with everyone we touch and all beings everywhere, as far as we can imagine. And I like to just punctuate that intention with a deep wish that all beings can have happiness and the causes of happiness increasing. All beings can be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. That all beings know the, the great joy of the way, which is only found here and that all beings grow in serenity, able to deal, sit in the middle of the joys and the sorrows with, at peace and less reactivity so that we don't add to the burden that's heavy enough. And our practice be dedicated today and every day uh, to everyone else's welfare, but not forgetting ourselves. Anyway, thanks for your practice. Let's just have 10 seconds more of quiet without any words.
may all beings know peace. Thank you. To be continued. Hopefully see you next week. And happy transition for all you retreatants. Come again. We're here every Tuesday. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.